It wouldn't be the Christmas holiday in the Western world without the magical sounds of the Nutcracker, composed by the great Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky, and centered around Clara, who falls in love with a Nutcracker prince and battles the Mouse King to the death. Today, we'll travel into the fantastical worlds of Tchaikovsky, choreographer Marius Petipa, and the writer and musician E.T.A. Hoffman as we go behind the scenes to get the nuts and bolts behind what makes this epic ballet crunch. Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Anyone know what the ETA stands for in ETA Hoffmann? Ernst Theodor Amadeus Hoffmann. Fun fact, Hoffmann added the Amadeus in his name because of his mild obsession for Mozart. Hoffmann was a musician, writer, and judge. He even had been known to dabble in composition. Which piece by Mozart does his music remind you of? Hoffmann wanted to revolutionize the fairy tale genre because he thought that the bourgeois household of the 19th century could use a little more creativity and imagination to inspire its children. With this goal in mind, in 1816, he created Der Nussnacker und der Mausekönig, the Nutcracker and the Mouse King. When Tchaikovsky got a hold of the story, it was actually based on a revised version by Alexandre Dumas. The choreographer, Marius Petipa, took a micromanagerial approach to the collaboration. He was constantly badgering Tchaikovsky with notes like, The stage is empty. Clara returns. After the chimes of a clock, a short tremolo. Five measures of scratching mice and four measures of their whistling. Then eight measures of accelerating music ending in a chord. He was very exacting and demanding. So, what was the dramatic action for which Tchaikovsky had to write music? After the light overture you heard earlier, we're thrown immediately into a Christmas party at the family of Judge Silberhouse. The guests arrive and decorate the tree. Thank you. 
As the clock strikes nine, it's time to call the children. Once the children have settled down, the judge orders that a march be played that you will know all too well. Tchaikovsky's instruction, Tempo of a Lively March. To illustrate the central importance of the children in the drama, Tchaikovsky gives them their own music, this time a gallop. Now it's time for the parents to enter, and in the same gallop, Tchaikovsky cooks up a heavy portion of steak and potatoes as the parents plod their way in. The composer even asks the orchestra to play pesante, which means heavy in Italian. Now we come to the crux of the matter, the life and soul of the party, the arrival of Godfather Drosselmeyer. An important note here, when E.T.A. Hoffmann wrote the fairy tale, he based the Stahlbaum family on that of his good friend, Julius Hitzig, and his two children, Marie and Fritz. And Hoffmann certainly saw himself as the crazy and imaginative godfather who showers the kids with gifts. So we can raise a glass for Hoffmann's own persona, Drosselmeyer, who Tchaikovsky introduces with some intoxicated and philandering music. Among Drosselmeyer's gifts include a dancing doll that jumps out of the cabbage strudel and a soldier that jumps out of the shepherd's pie. At least those nutritious dishes will balance all the sweets from Act Two. Then it's revealed. If Fritz and Clara weren't already spoiled enough, Drosselmeyer presents a nutcracker, which the kids promptly fight over before young Fritz accidentally breaks the nutcracker's teeth on some unruly hazelnuts. Drosselmeyer does some quick dental work on the poor toy, and to save the evening, the judge promptly instructs for a Grossvatertanz to be played. This translates literally to grandfather dance, going all the way back to the 1600s and played traditionally at weddings. 
Robert Schumann would have composed the most popular version in 1831 in the finale of his Papillon, or Butterflies, which Tchaikovsky would likely have studied at the piano. Here's Schumann's version. Here is Tchaikovsky's grand orchestral version. A funny note here, Tchaikovsky instructs ad libitum, which means performed with freedom to give maximum flexibility to the dancers. See if you can guess the spot of the last fortissimo chord at the end. The guests graciously depart. All's well that ends well. Or not. Now that everyone's gone, before going to sleep, Clara wants to check in on her recovering patient. Now all sorts of magic abounds in the air. And her precious toy beams with fantastic light. What's that? The clock strikes midnight. All of a sudden, Clara hears the scratching of mice. They surround her. She tries to flee, but freezes. There's this thing in composition called the rule of threes. You can repeat or sequence a musical phrase or sentence no more than three times in a row. This is generally followed to a T among all the foremost composers, from Telemann to Taylor Swift. Tchaikovsky, being a Russian composer trained as an Austro-Hungarian Italian, has never been known to play by the rules. Listen to this excerpt from his fourth symphony. Count how many times he sequences this phrase. Definitely more than three.
Tchaikovsky uses the same device for, guess what? The Christmas tree, which takes on epic proportions and just keeps on growing. Great background music the next time you're decorating a tree, by the way. Now the battle begins. The sentry wakes the rabbit drummers with the gunshot. The mice and the gingerbread soldiers prepare for battle. It's not looking good. The mice triumph, devouring the gingerbread soldiers, and their general, the Mouse King, finally arrives. has a trick up her sleeve, or on her foot to be more precise. She throws her shoe at the Mouse King and knocks him out. Clara has saved the day and the Nutcracker has inexplicably turned into a handsome prince to boot. Where have I heard that one before? She enters a forest of fir trees, and the gnomes honor the prince, Clara, and all of the rest of the toys. The end. Wait a minute. This is only the end of the first act. We've only reached the halfway point. There's still one whole act to go. That's the crazy thing about the Nutcracker. The story has been completed by the end of the first act. Clara and the newly transformed prince have defeated the Mouse King and his minions. So what's left? Well, luckily, Tchaikovsky wrote the second act because this is arguably where the greatest music sits. We start by entering the Enchanted Kingdom of Sweets. 
arrival of arguably the most alluring and sugary character from all the Tchaikovsky ballets, the Sugar Plum Fairy, announced by a cymbal crash, as is the case at many other momentous junctures in the ballet. Not the music you're familiar with? This is actually her arrival, and she will save her celestified dance for the end of the act. Now, after a river of rose oil swells, Clara and the Prince appear. along with 12 pages. And the Nutcracker recounts their story to all the delectable citizens of the Land of Sweets. He tells the story of battling the army of mice and how Clara valiantly stepped in to his rescue. The sugary court celebrates Clara's service to the prince. come to my favorite part of the ballet because, as I'm sure is the same for you if you're still listening, a good percentage of my teeth happen to be sweet. This is the divertissement, and the Italian and German sense, divertimento, could mean anything from a keyboard work or fantasia to music that accompanies social occasions or banquet music to be served with the desserts. In the French sense, where Tchaikovsky and Petipa are implying, the divertissement is part of a stage production, normally opera, but it works in ballet. This particularly saccharine divertissement includes everyone's favorite treats. Chocolate from Spain. Coffee from Arabia. However, this particular roast is clearly decaf. Tea from China.
and a Ukrainian Cossack dance called a trepak as a tribute to the courageous efforts of the gingerbread soldiers in battle. Next, we have a fun play on words. Mirliton is both a pipe, hence the flutes, and a pipe-shaped pastry, hence the sweet. In La Mère Gigon et les Polichinelles, we have Mother Gigon, who is an old woman who lives at a shoe, which can originally be traced back to an 18th century English nursery rhyme. The shoe is England, and the old woman is Parliament. Here's the ruckus they make. And don't forget the clowns. It's this section that makes me think Stravinsky had to have been influenced by Tchaikovsky's orchestration, particularly the doubling of the English horn with the bass clarinet, while creating his own clown masterpiece, Petrushka. Tchaikovsky told his friends, it's awfully fun to write a march for tin soldiers and a waltz for flowers. This is coming from someone who, let's just say fun isn't always reflected in his letters. This brings us to the Waltz of the Flowers, which is so magnificent it's performed as a finale to the concert version from the Nutcracker when dancers aren't involved. Speaking of waltzes, had Johann Strauss Jr. not stolen the title, everyone knows Johann Strauss Jr., of course, it's my opinion that Tchaikovsky would be crowned Waltz King of the World. He's known for waltzing his way through life. Even in his symphonies, Tchaikovsky inserts waltzes. In Symphony No. 6, one of the few pieces written after The Nutcracker and only weeks before Tchaikovsky's death in 1893, he inserts a waltz where the second or the slow movement would normally be played. This isn't any waltz. This is in 5-4. That means instead of the traditional 1-2-3-1-2-3 beat, you have to count to 5, which can be divided 1-2-1-2-3 or 1-2-3-1-2. Regardless of where you place the subdivisions, this music has certainly overdone it a bit on the champagne. Tchaikovsky didn't just compose dance music. There's a very famous account of the composer and his colleague, Monsieur Camille Saint-Saëns, donning their tutus and pas de doing their way through Georg Benda's opera, Pygmalion. Or was it Jean-Philippe Rameau's version? opera. Naturally, anyone's music of choice for an impromptu dance party. 
Back to the Waltz of the Flowers. Tchaikovsky certainly doesn't disappoint. The fantastic ballroom splurge gives us the opportunity to burn off all those calories that we've devoured earlier in the act. Speaking of pas de deux, a friend of Tchaikovsky's wagered that he couldn't write a piece of music based strictly on the notes of a scale. Well, Tchaikovsky happily obliged. In a little twist of fate, right after Tchaikovsky composed The Nutcracker, he had a run-in with the soon-to-be-famous composer and conductor Gustav Mahler. Mahler described the 52-year-old composer as an elderly gentleman, very likable, with elegant manners, who seems to be quite rich. Mahler steals this build-a-melody-out-of-a-scale approach from Tchaikovsky in his Seventh Symphony. What ends up being the second variation of the pas de deux you just heard is the famous Danse de la Fée Dragée, the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. Its signature sound is defined by the celesta, which was a new invention in 1886 by the Parisian builder Auguste Mustel. The always entrepreneurial Tchaikovsky was determined to be the first composer to use the new invention, asking his brother to go get me one of those instruments, but don't tell anybody. Unfortunately, French composer Ernest Chausson beat Tchaikovsky to the punch, plunking his celeste into his La Tempête in 1888. Tchaikovsky was nonetheless proud to beat his colleagues Rimsky-Korsakov and Glazunov to the punch and would compose the quintessential music to forever memorialize the celeste to accompany the Sugar Plum Fairy's graceful dance.
Tchaikovsky returns to what he does best with a final waltz in apotheosis, where he provides a rousing romantic finale to top off the land of enchantment, inspiration, and sweetness that both E.T.A. Hoffman and the composer have copiously created for us. Along with keeping most ballet companies alive by selling out houses for over a century, Tchaikovsky's music and its ability to bring a story to life will forever ignite our imaginations and creativity during the holidays and beyond. The Nutcracker becomes one of the sounds, smells, and tastes of our holiday spirit and the solstice, along with the season of renewal and the affirmation that life can be exactly what you create it to be. Thank you to all the incredible record labels and performers that made this episode possible. Ensembles you heard today include the Orchestra of the Kirov Opera, the Apotheosis Orchestra, the Ensemble Musica Nigella, the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra, the Simon Bolivar Youth Orchestra of Venezuela, the Oslo Philharmonic, and the Vienna Philharmonic. Conductors you heard today include Valerie Gergiev, Corneille Bernalet, Takanori Nomoto, Jan Kirstier, Gustavo Dudamel, and Maris Janssens. Soloists include Eleonore Pancrazi, Rita Strike, Melita Musili, Raymond Grumbach, and Philippe Biancoli. Record labels that made this episode possible include Philips, Apotheosis, Carta, La Dolce Volta, Classical Moments, Deutsche Grammophon, Shandos, and Decca. Thank you for joining us in One Symphony, and thank you to all of our listeners and sponsors in 2022. You can always find more at onesymphony.org. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music, and happy holidays. Happy holidays.